Before we dive in, just wanted to give a quick shout out to Matrix Sport, the sponsor of this week's episode and one of the fastest growing, largest digital asset platforms based out of Asia. More on them soon to come. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the weekly roundup edition of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by not one, but two dynamic co-hosts in the form of Tyler Neville and Casey Wagner making her debut on the roundup. What's going on, everybody? What's up, Mike? Hi, excited to be here. White shirt gang. We really uh, yes. coordinated here. Yeah, if you're listening on uh, Spotify or iTunes, you can't see, but we're all wearing white shirts. Looks phenomenal. I'm also part of the white headphone gang, uh, in case people are missing <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah. You know what we look like? Have you ever seen like that movie Divergent? We look like we're in some sort of like cult. <laughs> <laughs> I have. I have seen Divergent. Uh, yeah. Not the highest form of cinema. No offense, Shailene Woodley, if you're listening to this, but uh, not the highest form of cinema. I actually, you know, we we joke because we, uh, for those not working at Blockworks listening to this, we have this little like, please like Slack channel. Reed Hannaford, our head of creative a little while ago, did these headshots. And everyone for a long time at Blockworks had the same exact looking headshots and everyone would like each other's LinkedIn posts and we we're like, all right, the cult is back at it. <laughs> There'd be like eight identical looking people on LinkedIn liking every single post. Um yeah, a little inside baseball that uh, no one really cares about. All right, let's get into the uh stories of the week here. Um that was, okay. your, dad that was your dad joke, by the way. <laughs> I see the thing is is I have unlimited dad jokes. Um yeah. completely inexhaustible. Um and I also didn't get an adjective this week. Dynamic. I said oh, both 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 you guys are dynamic. That's a okay. that's a great adjective. Okay. Right. All right, fine. All right. Uh this uh today we're gonna be kicking it off with uh stagflationary warning signs. So Tyler, uh we're gonna be really deep diving um kind of into what you pointed out on your newsletter yesterday, which is this divergence in between the Baltic dry index which is a leading indicator of economic activity and a flattening yield curve and uh, continuously diving yields, uh, most notably the 10-year, kind of telling two different stories about uh, inflation versus deflation. We're actually going to do a debate uh, that Case is going to referee and uh, judge us on here at the end of the day. Uh, so that'll be a lot of fun. Um, second story of the day is a deep dive on crypto exchanges. We have a deep feature coming out uh, next week. You should all tune into the Blockworks site. Uh, we're going to be picking on Casey for her uh, deep knowledge there. Um, and then finally, we are going to be getting into uh, commercial bank lending, which has hit record lows. Um, and we can kind of tie that into everything that we're talking about, financial institutions and inflation uh, versus deflation in general. Sound good, guys? White shirt gang? Incidentally, you know, I made this uh, white uh, headphone gang joke because Brent Johnson used to have those. I was like, Brent, where are the uh, where are the white headphones? And he's like, oh, yeah, I used to have them, but I got rid of them because they didn't look so good. I was like, dude. <laughs> I'm sitting here with white headphones, <laughs> listening. I agree anyway. with him. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Let's get into our first story here. Um, stagflationary warning signs. So basically, uh, this originally, I think, came to us from uh, Tavi Costa, but he posted this great chart on Twitter, um, which is basically this divergence in between the Baltic Dry Index and the 10-year yield. So... Uh, from Investopedia, the Baltic Dry Index measures the change in cost of transporting various raw materials such as coal and steel. The Baltic Dry Index is often viewed as a leading indicator of economic activity because changes in the index reflect supply and demand for important materials used in manufacturing. And basically, the, the common sense explanation of that is it, it's a measure of, of the cost of freight, basically, for shipping raw materials around the world. So in general, when the cost of freight goes up, it means there's more demand to ship around raw materials, and that goes into 
that, that kind of shows the, the demand for actually producing uh, real goods that are used in the economy. Uh, what's interesting about this is that um, Tavi matched this up with the 10-year yield, which is dropping. And in general, what we're seeing is a flattening of the yield curve. So those yields that are way far off at the, at the far end of the curve, kind of the 30-year, the long bond is at the lowest it's been in, in quite a long time, where, whereas the, the shorter duration treasuries are actually kind of staying relatively stable. And generally, when you have a, a flattening of the curve, it's signaling low growth. So at the same time that you have the Baltic Dry Index picking up, uh, signaling high growth in the future, you kind of have this flattening of the yield curve indicating low growth. I guess, Tyler, let's let's pick on you first here. You were the one who kind of pointed this out and wrote a newsletter about it. What's the way to interpret this? There's just really big divergences in the market. And the the bond market is telling you one thing. Historically, that's been correct, right? The, the bond market generally drives everything. This one's a little bit weird to me because everything is still pretty inflationary if you look at the Baltic Dry Index. And I just, the only thing that really changed in my mind was Jay Powell went from talking about talking about tapering to like, okay, now we're going to talk about tapering, right? And that's what caused the big drop in long duration yields and that snapback in, you know, tech and growth equities. So... I don't really see much rollover in inflation or growth personally. So it's partly also a phenomenon of there's too much capital chasing too many, too little assets. So like if you have bond investors see in, you know, yields rise and they're like, oh crap, now we we can make up our gap of, uh, you know, pension funds, unfunded pensions. So they go and grab more bonds, right? So I think maybe that's part of the phenomenon as well, is there's just too much capital seeking a home. Um, but if you really look under the hood, we have negative real rates, which is theoretically pretty inflationary, right? Mm-hmm. If you have negative real rates, that means like, okay, you have to go you know, really out on the spectrum to, and, and basically you're going you're gonna to be forcing inflation. Um, inflation is higher than where the nominal rates are, right? So I, I think that will kind of that, – that divergence between the Baltic dry and the 10-year will reset and rates should, should rise from here is my read. What's your read? Yeah. I'm actually going to turn it over to Casey who's going to school all of us because uh, Luke Roman loves her and he's been talking to her about uh, negative real yields for a period of time. So Casey, what's your kind of take on uh, – Real yields, inflation, where you see everything going. You know, I haven't talked to Luke in a while about this, unfortunately, but I do remember speaking to him several months ago, and, and he said they were, were going to go negative, and here we are. I want to know how long Tyler thinks they're going to last, though, before we get into the inflation discussion. God, I think years. The only way really? to finance these huge deficits is to, to force negative real rates, is, is my read. And we're just going to be in this. Look, the junk bond market, you can issue debt, junk debt at negative rates now. Like, that's insane, right? Mm-hmm. You, what junk company isn't coming to market right now and issuing debt? Like, you should be doing that hand over fist and buying back your stock. Like, and that's really what we're seeing under the hood of everything. Um, and I think the Fed is. <laughs> I think they really mean what they say now where they're just going to keep printing and printing until, you know, we get unemployment dropping. 
I don't really think they care about the real rates. They want to finance giant fiscal deficits so that growth rates stay high enough. I think that's the bottom line, and they're using all sorts of weird, you know, adjusting language to, to keep, basically keep those printing presses going, is my read. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, ever since that interview that you did with uh, Russell Clark, Tyler, I'm trying to find logical explanations or actually reasons why the market is behaving rationally as opposed to just saying, these idiots, what are they doing? How could uh, corporate bonds, especially like, you know, triple C's be, be basically at, at negative real yields? And the explanation, I guess, like the reason why that's actually pretty rational is because when the Fed jumped in to stabilize markets, specifically credit markets last year, they went right after the junk bond market. So it actually kind of makes sense that you could finance debt at negative real yields, even for basically shitty corporate debt, uh, because you know that the Fed is going to jump in and save the day. So that's why those prices actually kind of make sense. Uh, it feels weird to be talking about, um, you know, corporate debt as a as a quote unquote store of value, but if you have the flood, if you have the Fed backing you up, then it actually kind of there's some rationality there. Well, it is until negative rates, negative real rates go really deeply negative, and then you get, I guess, eventually people just saying, okay, I'm losing money by investing in, in debt, right? Inflation's right. eating me up. So I think that's, that's the big key when pensions say, okay, we, can't, we can no longer invest in this. We're actually losing on a, on a real basis. But I don't even think that'll happen either because the boomers – they need to satisfy that yield no matter what. So we're in this like weird post-truth world of perennially negative real rates until the and if the Fed decides to tighten, the market will force them to not tighten again because it mm. it, it just becomes a liquidity suck. Yeah, that's sort of my well, read right now. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the the reason why we have these divergences is because we're split on this idea of inflation versus deflation. If you look at a bunch of different major markets right now, we're kind of in this long period of consolidation, which is boring, but it's also charged because it feels like it's going to move uh, in one direction or another. And I think a big part of that reason is that people don't agree. Is this inflation that we're seeing transitory? Is it going to switch to being disinflationary or deflationary again? Or is are we entering a period of secular uh, inflation? So we're going to do something a little bit special today. We're actually going to have a little bit of a debate in between me and Tyler in case I'm calling on you to referee this and uh you know be fair but you know you know know who's no yeah uh maybe do the smart thing and uh know who's buttering your bread here uh no just kidding okay cool so um you're both my Tyler. boss so it's hard <laughs> yeah well uh yeah all merit and uh for those listening uh comment um in, in the YouTube thread on who you guys think won Case, take it away. Maybe, Tyler, you kick us off with the uh, inflation, inflate the pro-inflation argument here, the bull case for inflation. Okay, okay. so, Tyler, I know you're, I know you're pro-inflation. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you something very specific. I heard about lumber a few weeks ago, and that's Powell's, like, picture-perfect example of why inflation is transitory because the lumber prices went down. What's your counter-argument to that? My counter argument to that is they were up like, was it 300%? So of course, yeah. Hi. assets do not go up in a straight line. So like transitory inflation, this was a pullback from a very overcooked level. Does that mean it's transitory? I don't know. What is transitory? You know, <laughs> I think if you look at 
oil, oil has done the opposite of lumber. It just continues to keep going higher. And that's like the basic plug for the entire global economy, right? So my, my read on lumber is that was kind of like a housing boom generated thing where just, you know, supply, uh, back, supply disconnect from all the demand coming. So, um, my bigger indicator is probably oil, um, for, for inflation. If that really pulled back, then I'd say, Hey, the deflation aces that just came out of the woodwork would actually have like some legs to stand on. But I don't see that. I don't see that at all. Mike. All right. Case, do you have any specific questions for me? You wanted me to just uh, tear apart Tyler's argument there. Just get well, started. What's, I, I mean, it, he's making sense. What's, what's your counter argument to that? All right. So my, my, thought, my thought process here is that just the, the macro elements of deflation just outweigh um, any of these like kind of secularly rising prices and commodities. So honestly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to parrot Mark Yusko here and I'm going to go into my Ds, which is uh, debt, uh, deflation or debt demographics. And I can't remember the third. So I'm just going to start with debt. But basically, you have a historic uh, ratio of, of debt to GDP. We're higher than I think we've ever been, including times of World War II. Uh, Stan Druckenmiller uh, went on CNBC about two months ago, uh, and he said something really interesting, which is that basically at the amount of debt that we currently have, something like 36 cents of every dollar actually just goes in of GDP goes towards paying down that debt, which is a super, super deflationary force because generally what we need uh, in order to see inflation is real economic growth, which drives increased wages and increased prices. If every dollar or out of every dollar earned, you have 36 cents of that going to just paying down debt, that's a super, super deflationary force. Uh, the next thing is demographics. And there's two important shifts to mark here. Like people talk about kind of the aging, um, like baby boomers and millennials in the US getting older. Um, and generally, folks that are older have a preference towards holding bonds because your time preference gets higher. Obviously, you want to hold something that's a little bit more stable because you're entering your retirement. Uh, so you don't want something, an asset that's going to dip uh, 20 or 30% or something like that. So older folks tend to favor uh, bonds just as a risk profile. And it's something like in the U.S. over the course of the next um, four years, I think it's, uh, you know, we used to have 15% of people over the age of uh, 65 are basically nonproductive workers. And that's going to shift up to 22%. So that's a big um, rotation into uh, bonds and out of stocks. But I think the other actually more important thing to look at is uh, Chinese demographics, uh, because you basically have um, this large labor pool that the U.S., because of our outsourcing relationship to China, we've effectively outsourced, brought in this enormous Chinese uh, labor pool into the United States, which has brought wages way, way down. Um, so you have something like, which I know you've been talking about, uh, Tyler. Uh, yes. What? <laughs> But that's inflationary. <laughs> Why is that inflationary? I, it is if the wages in China start to go up. But still, they are. Like, so, <laughs> okay, but to what levels, my friend? To what level? So if you look at the average, the average income of a you have not the median income, the average income uh, of a household in the United States is eighty four thousand dollars. In China, it's still ten thousand two hundred dollars. So you have to eight x to get. But them from where they are right now to where we are. And I know in that Russell Clark interview, it's like they could be increasing wages at 4 or 5%. You got to do that a long time for an 8X, my friend. It's still a billion people. A billion people. That's a lot. That's a lot of more buyers. 
It, it, it is, but what I'm saying is to still get competitive <laughs> with U.S. wages, we've still got a ways to go, basically. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so Tyler, yeah. Mike's pointing to wages. What, what are you watching to prove inflation is, is here to stay? Well, a lot of it is a political thing, right? So here's very interesting. Biden came out today. He, he issued an executive order. And let me read this for a second. It says, greater scrutiny of mergers, especially dominant internet platforms with particular attention to acquisition of nascent competitors, serial mergers, the accumulation of data, competition by free products, and the effect of user privacy. So if you think about like Amazon being a highly deflationary company and having you know super deflationary effects, pricing power is going down was going down for a generation because they basically like unlocked all these efficiencies. If all these platform companies that have basically kept a lid on consumer inflation for years and years are getting essentially broken up or the the ability to consolidate more and more and create more scale is not available, consumer prices will rise. And and he goes on in, in 2018, this is from Wall Street Journal, Biden said the rise of monopolies weakens labor. And so if he's really, what he's really trying to do is raise the wages for, for labor and take the power over from capital is, is really what I think Biden's doing with this order. And if you have that transition, it, it, you get doubly hit. You know, the monopolies basically are squeezed because uh, they have to pay more for their labor, right? And they, they're going to inevitably, if they don't have this like cycle of like endless scale, they'll have to charge more for their, for their prices. So you get wage inflation and you get actual like commodity and, and you know, goods inflation. So... I think it's it's a political thing that's really behind the winds of this. Yes, you have, and partly the reason why we're in this position is because of the demographics. It's because of the debt. If they don't do anything, our world just implodes, right? If Biden just lets, you know, if he doesn't pull out giant fiscal guns and anti-monopoly, uh, like our world kind of implodes. Right. And that's sort of why I think this is the swing to real inflation. You, you're going to have giant fiscal plans because you need growth to pay off that debt. Right. You need the economy nominally to grow so that they can pay off that 42, what is it you say, 42 cents on the dollar. If they have like meager growth rates, then they're screwed. So they have to pull out the guns. So that's my, that's my big push is the, the, the political narrative is way more powerful than the debt and demographics narrative. Mm. But mm. people haven't gotten around to it yet. So is the world going to implode, Mike? <laughs> is the world going to implode? I don't, I don't know. know. I think, uh, okay, so one thing I, you guys probably saw on Twitter, this was getting passed around, is like this really stupid headline uh, from CNBC, which is that the silver lining of inflation might mean higher salaries. And People went off and just had a field day. They were like, who are these morons? What are they writing over there at CNBC? Yada, yada. Media sucks. Okay. Yeah, that didn't look so great the way they wrote it. But at the end of the day, they're actually not that wildly far off. Like, inflation exists on a spectrum. And there are kind of two types of inflation. There's 
the good kind of inflation and the bad kind of inflation. And the good kind of inflation is just growth that's just overheated a little bit. And that is all about wage growth. That's price wages and prices kind of going up in this self-fulfilling prophecy or like whatever type of cycle, right? And then there's the bad type of inflation, which is that nobody trusts the dollar. So if you're talking about inflation on the spectrum of, hey, maybe it's going up 3 or 4% a year because the economy is rip-roaring, then actually that wasn't that stupid of an article. But if you're actually talking about it from the fact that nobody believes in the currency anymore, then yeah, that was like the dumbest article ever written. It's just, you know, a lot of the nuance uh, goes out of it. I think at the end of the day, just like uh, Bitcoin, Tyler and I are both going to be right, <laughs> you know, just depending on what your time horizon is. There's probably going to be inflation at some point in the future. There's going to be deflation at some point in the future. Uh, I, I realize that that's a little bit of a cop-out, but, you know, that's that's kind of what I feel <laughs> like. Um, although I do think if you've been calling for inflation for the last 40 years and it eventually comes, you're not allowed to say you were right. I firmly <laughs> I firmly agree with that. <laughs> you were not right, my friend. <laughs> you were not right. Um, so that's what I think. I guess we'll, we'll have to let everyone uh, in the comments be the judge uh, of who is about well actually casey give us our scores here who who, who convinced <laughs> you the most i mean me personally it was pretty close but i might have to go with tyler let's go casey, casey. Uh, casey yeah. i'm gonna need you to report to <laughs> hr after this on a completely I'm sorry, unrelated note I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right cool um no i think uh, yeah i very compelling point uh tyler very well done what's going on everyone Excited to talk to you about one of my favorite new companies in the space, a company called Matrixport. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know we spend a lot of time talking about this crazy environment of low yields that we're all living in. The big question is, if inflation is around the corner, how are we all going to protect our wealth? Well, Matrixport has some really, really interesting solutions I think you should check out. And the big thing is, they, they do so many things, it's almost hard to cover everything in 30 or 45 seconds or whatever we have here. Two things that I want you to walk away with. One, they allow you to earn up to 30% yield. Two, they are leveling the playing field between institutional and retail investors. A little bit of background about this company. They are one of the fastest growing platforms based out of Asia. The really cool thing about these guys, they're literally a one-stop shop. Everything you need, custody, spot trading, OTC, fixed income, structured products, lending, asset management. These guys literally do it all. When they walk me through the demo, my jaw was on the floor the entire time. Here's what they've basically done. All those crazy structured products that are available to institutions that allow them to earn so much yield, they've basically taken them, packaged them up in a way that anyone can understand it, and they've made it available to their entire audience of investors. That is just a freaking awesome thing to do, very cool mission, but also it allows you to manage your risk in a super sophisticated way and earn huge, huge yields on this platform to protect you from the pernicious effects of inflation. So for example, you can start earning 30% in APY on USDC today if you go to onthemargin.link slash matrixport. Again, that is onthemargin.link slash matrixport. I don't know what you're waiting for. Go check them out. Thank me later. Um, all right, let's let's make the shift into uh, talking about crypto exchanges. So let's just start at a really high level here. Casey, I know you're writing an in-depth feature um, on this. What Talk to us a little bit about what's going on uh, in the world of crypto exchanges, how they're kind of being seen, and, and maybe like the relationship in between what's going on with um, kind of banks and how they're allowing consumers to get access to, to assets like Bitcoin. Yeah, so we're, we're seeing an interesting shift with exchanges kind of leaning into these banking products and they're starting to take on more of a banking role 
kind of alongside banks attempting to get involved in crypto and, and trying to start offering crypto services to some of their clients. Um, but kind of going back from that, most crypto exchange revenue comes from trading fees. In 2020, mm -hmm. Coinbase said that 90% of their revenue came from transaction fees. So pretty much all of it. Um, when crypto had its big run at the beginning of 2021, exchanges obviously reported record volumes. They had a lot of revenue. This isn't likely to continue, though, with the market that we're seeing. And Coinbase even issued a warning to investors on their first quarter earnings call a few months back that they do not expect to operate higher than a break even going forward. So kind of in the backdrop of all this, we've seen in the last year or so exchanges are really starting to lean into these banking products. They're starting to offer services like high yield savings accounts. We saw Gemini do this last year. Coinbase and Compound Labs both announced that they were going to do the same earlier this year. Um, exchanges are starting to offer lending programs. Clients can now borrow against their holdings and, and use their crypto as collateral for loans. Exchanges are even getting banking licenses. We saw that Kraken got one back in September for a special purpose depository institution, SPDI, mm -hmm. license. Um, and so what Kraken is doing with that and, and what I think a lot of these exchanges are trying to start to get into is they're, they're really trying to make the relationship, the banking relationship between digital assets and national currencies more compatible. Um, with Kraken's license, clients can now pay bills or receive salaries in cryptocurrency. They can incorporate digital assets into their investment and trading portfolios. It's really a, a kind of side to crypto exchanges that we've never seen before. And it's very unique to crypto and that other exchanges are not offering these kind of lending and banking services. So it's a really interesting spot. Demand is definitely there from clients and, and we'll see what banks kind of do to respond. Yeah. So to some, I mean, one thing I know, like back in 2016, 2017, they used to get talked about a lot from kind of in institutional circles in crypto is people thought it was very funny that exchanges would be custodians at the same time, because in traditional financial markets, that's a big no-no, uh, right? But since then, that trend has almost continued along, right? And instead of separating custody from the exchanges themselves, they've actually layered on more and more services, right? So you pointed out there, you know, Coinbase, I think this week rolled out a high yield savings account. Gemini's had one for a little while. So they're essentially doing like bank accounts in crypto. They're doing lending in crypto. They're essentially encompassing this wide range of financial services to the point where that doesn't really look like the model of an exchange. New York Stock Exchange doesn't give you interest on your savings that you that you sit with them, right? Um, so that, that's just really interesting. Um, talk to us a little bit about, there's been some noise on uh, kind of the traditional banking side of this, right? And there have been announcements that have come out that, hey, X, Y, and Z Bank is going to be able to offer to their customers the ability to, they can buy Bitcoin through their bank. Talk to us a little bit about the, the movement that's going on in the more traditional side of things. Yeah, I mean, in the last six months to a year, we've seen institutional adaptation for crypto across the board. But with banks especially, you know, clients are coming to them and saying, we want to buy crypto. We want exposure to this asset class that's all over the news. I want these returns. Maybe not right now, but at the time, you know, <laughs> investors are really interested in it. Um, so NYDIG is, is a big firm that's really starting to get involved in this space. They had two partnerships that came out earlier this month. Um, 
The first is with Fiserv. They're creating a software that would allow banks to have clients trade and buy crypto directly on their online banking apps. So you could go on your Bank of America app and, and buy Bitcoin, which would be pretty revolutionary. Um, they also partnered with the National Cash Register to try to connect banks and credit unions with crypto trading services. And so these are all things that are kind of in the works. There's obviously a lot of questions with custody and, and security and, and kind of the details of how these things will work out. But the overall theme is that banks are definitely realizing that clients want exposure to these assets and they don't always want to do it indirectly through Grayscale Bitcoin Trust or another exchange traded product like that. And a lot of times they don't want to do it through an exchange. I think that a lot of traditional or a lot of newer crypto investors have some fears around security and custody with exchanges. So how do you see, I mean, do you see crypto exchanges kind of being competitive almost with banks in terms of making these offerings? Or what is the different like customer profile of someone who would buy and hold through a bank versus a crypto exchange? Yeah, I mean, I think that the clients right now are very different. I think that the client that is drawn to the exchange is someone who has not only high crypto holdings, but also a very high level understanding about the asset class. They are traders that understand arbitrage opportunities. They want decentralized finance opportunities with leveraging parachain auctions. They're traders that understand these concepts around crypto. They want to be able to stake. They want to borrow against their holdings. The average investor that's new to the asset class is not thinking about crypto in these terms quite yet. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think at the end of the day, the exchanges are really tailoring their services to the clients that understand kind of what, what's going on. And, and banks are starting to enter the space. I mean, I'm not sure what's going to happen in the next few years, but I think right now it, it is a very different clientele. And, you know, exchanges, I think the major issue that exchanges face right now is they're very much geared towards traders and financial professionals that are far beyond the, they're, they're not within reach of the normal consumer and their product today is not tailored to the broader consumer market. Whereas yeah. what the banks might be offering in the next few months would be. So, Case, let's let's speculate a little bit here. So, you mentioned uh, in that Coinbase S one that ninety six percent of Coinbase's revenues came from uh, it's like transaction based fees right now. I think Brian Armstrong came out and said, I forget over the, somewhere over the course of the next couple of years, he wants fifty percent of the revenue of Coinbase not to come from those transaction based fees. It's going to come from things like staking, right, lending, yes. all those other products that we were talking about. Do you think that's realistic? You know, I, I don't think it's realistic in the next couple years. I think maybe five years. They they have Coinbase Pro, which is their kind of advanced trader platform. It offers a lot of services that, again, the average trader doesn't want or need. Um, they also have their institutional platforms. I think that, you know, they there. I wrote an article a few weeks back about the first 401k that's going to allow clients or investors to access crypto in their 401ks, they're mm -hmm. using Coinbase to custody that. And I think we're going to see more and more of those deals and more and more maybe smaller banks are going to start to lean into crypto. And like I said, they're going to need a custodian. So I can see exchanges taking on more of that role. And, and that is going to be a lot of revenue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I mean, you know, it's a great example of like a, a smaller bank that has become, you know, a, a giant in the space already is Silvergate. Uh, the leadership of Alan Lane to steward a bank uh, into doing what they've done in crypto is just 
frankly, phenomenal. And the SEN and SEN leverage networks that they've built are like critical, critical pieces of infrastructure uh, for both exchanges and asset managers in this space. So yeah, I think it'll Definitely. be really interesting. Yeah. Um, what do you, what do you, th- do you have any opinions on, before we move on to our, our last topic here on like, I guess when I kind of look at exchange, like a, a traditional exchange business model, you be it's exactly what Coinbase kind of looks like today, which is um, they they generate the majority of their revenues and profits through transaction based fees. Uh, what it looks like they're shifting to, I mean, one thing that I thought was pretty interesting in that Coinbase S one is that they talked about the amount of assets that they have, and I get that they have a custody business, but what that almost feels more like is a it's like the discount brokerage model where really what you're trying to, or, or bank model, where you're trying to gather up assets and then through like lending them out, there's, it's like a net interest margin type business. So you have a bunch of assets and then you find ways to kind of somewhat passively, somewhat actively generate revenue on those assets. So when you think about the model of exchanges, like a couple of years out. How does it look? Does it look like a very transaction kind of based model? Are they doing more of these like banking type services? Like paint me a picture here. Tell me the future, Casey. That's what I want to know. You know, I am new to this space, but (laughs) I I see it going more in that direction. I definitely agree. And, you know, like you said, it's these crypto exchanges are not operating like a typical stock exchange. It's it's very different. It's a lot of services. Of course, a lot of that just comes with the nature of the asset class. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think that we're only going to see increased demand from clients. I think that as institutional adoption grows, as investors start to want to gain exposure to this asset class, they're, they're just going to be forced to offer more services. And I think that the demand is only going to go up. Yeah, can, I, can I give my historical perspective on this? Hit us. Of course. So one of the biggest like themes in this next 10 years is transaction fees, right? And what we saw from the access to the public markets from like 30 years ago, we used to trade in like eighths, right? To mm-hmm. half a penny now and to actually free. Like look what happened to Robinhood's whole business model once it dropped commissions to free. And and what happened to what happens to Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley's research when they get paid zero they get paid really tiny commissions now to to execute trades is their research kind of sucks right like and and that's a centralization problem when you become a centralized player you're at the whim of the price cutting right it's the Jeff Bezos your margins my opportunity my point being. Jack Mahler's just came out, was it two weeks ago? And he was like, I'm making Bitcoin transactions free, right? That absolutely kills the pricing power and commissions of these you know, giant companies like Coinbase if, if it gains scale, right? And it's just like what happened with BlackRock when they cut their fees on ETFs, active management gets annihilated. And so... You're basically opening up the on-ramps to more and more people when the transaction costs drop. And the closer they get to zero, the more scale it is, right? So if you can get transaction costs to zero, that opens up everything. It's democratizing stuff, right? But you also you also get like that monopoly effect like, like Robinhood does, right? If you drop it to zero and then it creates these weird incentives. 
That might not be bad for Bitcoin though, because it's naturally decentralized. So like if you can gain access to everybody, then it the volatility drops, you know, everyone is an owner of this thing, and then you can create these ecosystems underlying it. But my, my point being is that Coinbase, if they can keep their fees, their trading fees up here, it would be just like so shocking. It's they're gonna get so eaten up so that they'll have to they'll have to basically create new products off it. And they probably will be able to because they have like a lot of assets in, in custody. Um, but when you analyze it from the transaction cost perspective, it's really fascinating. And not only that, the banks are trying to do this stuff while their commissions are dog shit. And they're trying to get into it after the fact. Bank of America just hired a crypto team. It's like, dude, you're too late. I, yeah. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I, maybe maybe they're not, but like, no, it's just crazy to me. Well, I would love to be a fly on the wall of like the big banks where they're like, oh my God, like what the hell do we do here? Like my business model is, is putting people in debt, right? <laughs> and like, there's these other companies that could do it for cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I will just say like a couple anecdotal things. When we started doing this in 2016, 2017, we, Jason and I took great pains to go out and meet people at, Bank of America, Fidelity, all these big law firms because we wanted to get the institutional perspective. Six months into that rally, every single one of them left to go join a startup. And that's already happening again. And mm. I like I, I will say there have, there have been conversations that I've had with people inside large institutions been like, wow, you guys are extremely well informed. Like, I'm shocked that you know all this because you're not doing anything publicly. But then every once in a while, I'll have a conversation and be like, ooh. You guys are so behind, man, so behind. <laughs> and, you know, because crypto is just like, it's kind of this goofy space. Imagine how difficult it must be to be an investor in this space. You literally need to take a significant amount of your portfolio and put it in things called sushi and yam and stuff like that. Imagine how difficult that is just from a purely mental perspective. And then imagine you're trying to yeah. advise to make those decisions to some like 65-year-old white guy who like has the... It's just not going to work. It just doesn't Hold quite on. work. Let me present the question to you guys. And this is where like, if you are a baby boomer and inflation's at 5% and the US 10 year treasury is at 1.36%, right? And you would you buy that, you know, from this perspective, would you buy that bond yielding 1.36% with inflation at 5% or Dogecoin, which has unlimited upside? <laughs> All right, Casey, I'd love to get your opinions on Dogecoin. Imagine yourself as a boomer, first of all. All right, let's yeah, do that. Well, I, I do have an anecdote. My dad texted me about a month ago and said, should I buy Dogecoin with a space in between? <laughs> so he's not quite there yet. He does have some Bitcoin, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. So here's... I, I just still think it's crazy. I think if you have... A, if you have extra money laying around and you see like some of these like little tiny tokens go up 10x you're like would i rather lose money or put it in dogecoin and not saying that i think yeah. it's kind of a joke but it kind of synopsizes the ethos of investing across generations and asset classes right now is like people think it's crazy that that cryptocurrencies are doing this 
But it's the same people that are losing money in real terms in other areas. And they don't even realize it. So like who who's the joke on? That's very that's a good question. Here I, I kind of think that I mean most people aren't like what I mean, even if you try to describe losing money in real terms to people, that's almost like not super intuitive to people, right? They they kind of because people look at money in a very people look at their assets in a very nominal type way. So I think yeah. in order for people to actually start making those trade offs in their minds, it, I think the, millennials get it. In, in Zoomer, I think the millennials get it better than better than the older generations because it just feels less attainable to a younger generation. Like we've talked about this a lot. You just can't buy a house anymore. That's not something you don't need to explain that mm-hmm. to anyone. You're just like, what do you mean? What am I going to do? Put $500,000 down for a house that's not even that great? What? It's just you don't even think about it. I mean, so it's just you – the millennial generation and the Zoomers, they just know it intuitively. They're not looking at real yields. They're not thinking about – it's just my lifestyle is not affordable. I need to take more risks. It happens yeah, on a very – you know, the wages go up 3% a year in housing and education and books and like, they all go up 10 to 15%. So it's like, they get it because they, they're realizing that the American dream as they know it is so unattainable, the longer they don't get paid those wages. So they have to go out on the super risk spectrum and the feds forcing it and the government, but boomers thinks it's stupid. So it's like, that therein lies the opportunities. They're they're choking the float on these like legacy assets, and it just takes a, a tiny incremental dollar to create an asymmetric convexing payout over on this side in the digital assets. Mm-hmm. I'll stop. Well, I so I had this I had this uh, experience the other day. I was I was I've been asked to explain the concept of Bitcoin to a coffee group of people in their kind of sixties as. as it's happened to me a couple of times across the year. So I'm trying to think, like, how am I going to explain Bitcoin to this group of people? And actually, there were a couple of people who spent their whole career in finance. So they actually – this one guy who was like 65 years old, he instantly understood the value proposition. But his chief complaint was, well, why would I want the Federal Reserve to go away? They've had my back for 30-some years. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, I can't really argue with that. They have had your back. And that's just a very different lived experience than I have had. Um, as someone coming from a different generation. So I can understand that perspective. Totally. Um, yeah. So that's a great call. Like if you are an asset owner for 40 years, you see nothing wrong with, you know, your house going up in value and your 401k going up in value because you're staying ahead of the inflation, but like they didn't have student loans and they, in the same size. Yeah. So we'll close this off, Case. I'm going to pick on you to end this year. But, you know, when I – so my parents were one of those uh, – they were like high school sweethearts. Right? They actually got married while they were still in college. They did that – they did the, the meme thing. You know when you know how the meme, it's like what my parents were doing at 25 versus yeah. what I'm doing at 25? <laughs> my parents were literally buying a house at 25. They were moving in. They were getting ready to have kids, all that kind of stuff. And back then, that was what you wanted to do. You wanted to like have, you know, have a house, right, then have kids and move in and – Casey, I'm curious, like, how would you talk about the timeline for, like, your generation, right? When you're graduating school, like, what are the milestones that you're kind of looking for, hoping to achieve, all that kind of stuff? Just speak for your whole generation, uh, if that's that's okay. <laughs> well, I think one of 
a bit like a big notable thing about younger generations is we have a lot more job. We, we switch jobs a lot more often. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people, our parents, Mike and I's parents age, they, you know, they had their career and they had their retirement fund and they were staying at the same job for 20, 30 years. And I think that that's very different now. Um, but yeah, I mean, student loans are insane. I, the thought of buying a house, I mean, I'm 23. I, there's no way my parents got married. My mom was 24 when she got married and they bought a house and that's shocking. I mean, my rent, <laughs> it's like, I can't. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard out here. Yeah. Just very I, different. I love that juxtaposition. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, hopefully people got the, the meme reference there. All right, uh, let's just the yeah. last last thing I want to uh, touch on here is just commercial bank lending, which has actually hit record lows. Uh, again, this is credit to Tyler because you were the one who pointed this chart out to me. Um, but you know, we'll link it in the show notes. But essentially, just the commercial bank lending in general since 2008 has basically been dropping like a straight, like like a stone uh, to to record low levels, um, even through like uh, you know dips and dips and bumps in the economy. And and the reason why this is significant is because that's where actual M2 money supply is created. That's through commercial bank lending. So all of this money printer go burr memes and everything that you hear, that is M1 money supply. That's the Fed's money supply that they use with other commercial banks. But the dollars that you and I think of, that all gets created through commercial bank lending. So essentially, if you don't have commercial banks lending, you're not getting that money supply creation. And just a story that happened just this week was Wells Fargo um, announced that it will no longer offer personal lines of credit to customers. Um, They're not accepting new applications and they're closing down the accounts of those who already had a line of credit open with the bank. Now, this is kind of emblematic. I mean, it just kind of dovetails very nicely with this chart that that you shared, Tyler. Um, I will say that there are other, you know, Wells Fargo has maintained other credit products um, with uh, for individuals, but those are basically revolving lines of credit or credit cards. So they, what they've essentially done is eliminated a cheaper option for debt and kept more expensive uh, debt options open for individuals. But I think overall, it just shows that they're deprioritizing their individual consumer lending businesses in general. So is it a colossal deal that Wells Fargo is doing this? Probably not. Does it dovetail kind of nicely with this narrative? And is it just more like emblematic of what's going on? With banks in general, I think so. And I'm curious what what both you guys think about this this decrease in commercial bank lending. Case, why don't you go first? No, I think you should go first. All right, I need a well, minute. Okay, so my general read on this is so Wells Fargo had some fumbles because they you know had a bunch of issues with the government and like and creating like accounts and charging weird fees, so they got like put in this like black box from the government. And I think like Bank of America and JP Morgan ate their lunch in terms of like taking advantage of that, right? And so they grew way, way bigger and Wells Fargo is still dealing with all this stuff. And I think their profitability went way down. So they're trying to close off the less profitable business lines, which is like lines of credit, which is generally like a lower rate of interest. And like, I think, you know, we're probably talking like 4% or something on a line of credit. Whereas if maybe that's even lower now with rates where they are and then credit cards are like astronomical, it's like 16% you get off credit cards. So it's, it's clearly like, 
hey, let's uh, try to get more profitable and put the consumer more in debt, right? <laughs> like instead of servicing, like you know, when when someone really needs, uh, uh, you know, the line of credit and then all, all that stuff, doing like a good for the middle class. It this it really just just annihilating the middle class more and giving more debt at a higher interest rate to the people who don't need it. In my read, um, and I just. Therein lies the banking problems. I think they're going to have a really hard time doing that. If I can borrow money from Coinbase at or what or BlockFi or like any of these other players that are lending money now, why wouldn't I do that? Like BlockFi was seven. I think I borrowed at seven percent against my ETH, and that's probably way better than like a personal line of of credit or a credit card debt at uh, Wells Fargo. So. I think they're going to get killed on this, really, unless they really start cranking out those loans somehow. But um, it's just a funny, it's a funny thing. It's a funny thing. Yeah. I feel, I mean, I feel like one of, so one of the things that's happened in general with risk in financial, financial markets or Financing in general is a little bit different from other industries, right? Because it's in a weird way, it's almost a utility. People need access to credit in order for the economy to work. So usually the way risk-taking goes in business scenarios, if let's say I, as a co-founder of BlockWorks, want to take risks and I leverage myself and borrow a bunch of money and I want to do this $10 million event and it all goes bust, I'm like, ah, sorry, well, you screwed up and your company's out of business now. In finance, it can't really work like that because policymakers and people in general, they don't want their businesses to fail because they can't get access to financing or credit. Or if your bank blows up and your business fails as a result of that, that really sucks, right? So there's a lot of protection. Now, on the other hand, banks, even though they have this utility-like function in economies, they still are private businesses as well. And the way that you generally make outsized returns is people want to take risk. And over time, there have been these like Kind of cycles, right? There was like savings and loans, right? And where basically there wasn't a really good market for these like individual, uh, you know, lines of credit basically. And they went out of the highly regulated banking system into these little savings and loan institutions. They took too much risk and they blew up. So over time, what we've seen is a consolidation of risk. And what the policymakers have decided is that the bigger you are, the less risky your operations are. And what that's had the effect of doing is just massive, massive consolidation across the banking sector. And then it's just a business opportunity, right? So for these big banks, they don't give a shit about tiny little companies, not because they're terrible people, but because they're a tiny little customer. It's like the customer that for us spend whatever. There's an analogy to be made, right? It's like your smallest customers take up 80% of your time. So JP Morgan doesn't care about their BlockWorks banking relationship. They care about their... Amazon Web Services banking relationship, you know, because it generates five orders of magnitudes more more, uh, more dollars for them. So I think it's just this, um, you can kind of see how it happens, but I think the limit, like the consolidation in the banking sector and the elimination of these kind of smaller regional lenders is actually really detrimental to just entrepreneurship and, and real yeah. economic growth in general, I think. Financing BlockWorks doesn't matter to them. Like no. that doesn't matter to their bottom line. So putting yeah. man, you know, the manpower behind or woman power behind lending to those types of businesses is like, who cares? You know, we need to finance. Give me, give me a hundred billion dollar idea I can finance. That's the real news. So yeah. it's just like giant, giant, you know, projects. 
So just come up with a really cr- crazy giant project to have them finance for us. We'll do a spec. Right. We'll do a spec. <laughs> Speaking of specs, there yeah. have been let's let's close actually. I just didn't list this at the beginning, but this is from some pretty interesting stuff going on in crypto land. Two big specs coming out uh, in crypto land. Case, you want to talk a little bit about Circle or Bullish or, or where do you want to start there? Um, I want to start with Bullish, but I so refresh my memory a little bit there. There's no, there's no product. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think right, it's you want to go, go round two on this debate here, my friend. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. All right. I'm going to be bullish, bullish. Mike is going to be bearish, bullish, bearish, bullish. Okay. It's going to sound yeah. like nonsense. Bullish is the name of an exchange. So yeah. uh, for those who don't know, all right, case okay. lay it out for us. Okay. So Tom Farley's, Pack is merging with Bullish to bring a planned crypto exchange public. Bullish. Bullish is going public. Mm-hmm. Um, so why are you bullish on Bullish, Tyler? Okay. I think the main argument here is Bullish is coming out with a SPAC at $9 billion with no real product yet. It's in beta. Uh if you look normally, I'd I'd look at this and I'd be like, oh, that's a short, right? Like I I I'd probably be like, this is a joke. But you have Tom Farley, who is the ex president at uh, NYSE and at ICE, right? This guy knows exchanges inside and out. He's the president. Then you got the Block One guy as the chair, and you ha- you're backed by Peter Thiel, Alan Howard, um. There was a couple other guys, um, Mike Novogratz, uh, Rich Lee, and the guy he does the uh, European guy, big macro investors, right? That 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 are rarely wrong, right? I don't think they'd overvalue something that didn't have a tangible uh, use case. My guess is what's happening behind the scenes is this: they are basically lining up institutional staking and yield generation. And they probably have like, you know, CalPERS and CalSTRS and, and all these uh, Canadian pension plans already kind of like verbally okay, ready to go to basically stake their coins and get like 10% yield. And basically they need all this yield to satisfy all their pensions. And there's no real institutional option for that right now. That's like, the securities there. I bet you they've been building all that and getting ready for it and they're going to launch with it and it's going to be a raging success. You don't get that many good investors and controllers in one spot. No, that that is a good point. So Tyler thinks there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Mike, why are you bearish on bullish? Okay. Why am I bearish on bullish? I'm going <laughs> to give you two. two case. One is my actual case and then maybe I'm going to take the less uh, generous side of the argument that Tyler just laid out there. Um, but I think in general, in crypto, there's this idea of cathedrals versus bazaars. And actually, before we get into what that actually means, there's this kind of interesting psych study that's been done. Or, and uh, basically, it's, it's, um, they're, they're trying to determine if thought process or experience is a better judge of doing a task. So they take two people, two groups of people, basically, and they have this task, no experience, like building clay pottery or anything like that. And they're like, okay, to this one group, you have an hour. I want you to think about what is the best way that you could design this like vase or something like that. You only get to create one, but you have all this time to think. And then for the next group of people, they're just like, make as many vases as you can over the course of the next hour, go. 
And almost invariably, what ends up happening is the better vases come from the people that just are making as many vases as they possibly can. And the idea there being experience really is the best teacher. Fred Wilson also has another way of saying this, which is you make your own luck, which is just by getting out there and doing things in a business sense, listening to your customers, you're going to end up doing a much, much better job than all of the thinking and money in the world because you're actually out there getting real experience and communicating with your customers. So the idea of a cathedral versus a bazaar not to poo-poo any projects, but there was a very well-known, very well-backed uh, protocol that has recently been renamed and just launched that was like all the rage back in 2017, had all of these illustrious investors. It was like the talk of the town. Everyone wanted to get in on this thing. And the mainnet just kind of went live under a new name and nothing's really happened except that it's dropped 90% and nobody's using it. So I, as opposed to protocols that are doing very, very similar things that just launched with a minimum viable product and got people using them, those are actually doing very well. So in general, when I kind of look at something like bullish, it's like there's no product. I get it. There's a lot of money. I, you know, I just don't really see how they're going to do it. I just don't see, I don't see the road to success. And I will actually paint the less generous version, Tyler, of what you just laid out, which is in an ideal scenario, they've got all these pensions that are ready to like yield farm and stake and do all this stuff, yada, yada. Here's a, here's another interpretation. But there's no yield in the public market. Here's another. I'm sorry if you're listening to this. I, <laughs> trillions, so, trillions of dollars. You know, so <laughs> bullish comes from EOS. Mike Novogratz owns about 25% of all those EOS tokens out there. Mike Novogratz goes to a couple of buddies of his that don't know so much about crypto. He says, hey, this exchange, this Peter is the Thiel? one. Peter Thiel? I got to think that's how it works. You the one who told me millionaires use data, billionaires use astrology. And you know what else billionaires do? (laughs) They trust their buddies. They trust their buddies and they don't do a whole lot of due diligence. So I kind of think it's like, hey, man, this is the one, you know, this exchange. You think you you knock down another name. Swindled them into this investment? Well, (laughs) no, I do not think anyone is swindling. I think it's best of intentions. Like lots of good investments are put together this way. I would just suggest that a lot of these people that are making these investments maybe are doing it off the recommendations of friends instead I would of norm- for active due diligence. I would normally agree with you, but this specific group of billionaires does not do astrology investing. It's not like they're like <laughs> real estate investors. These guys are like, they're legit. Like yeah. Alan Howard's been in crypto for years. So the same with Peter Thiel, same with Novo. Like these guys aren't just coming in like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to pile on. You know, they've seen the entire progression of this stuff. Um, so I'm, I don't know. I'm still bullish, bullish. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that I'm bearish, bullish. But I, I, I wish I had come up with examples off the top of my head. But it's just there, there have been other high profile projects that people have poured money into. There was this marquee list of investors. And then it was like. Nah, dude. <laughs> nah. And that's, I, you know, that's, well, Q- that's Cuban human just nature. Lost on that stable coin thing. So, I mean, there, there are, you know, we'll see how it plays out. We'll see how it plays out. I give out. a lot of credit to Cuban for wading into a space where there's not a lot of upside because there's a lot of reputational downside still to be had. He took a bit of a risk. He went out there and yeah, this, this particular one didn't really work out, but I have a lot of respect for, for guys doing stuff like that. And I'm not, by the way, this is all in good fun. Bullish might be a huge success. I'm not rooting for anyone's failure. I'm just 
Bullish, if you, want, if you want some ad dollars, if you want a place, just call me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Um, what's everybody's weekend plan? White shirt gang. What are we doing in our white shirts? Um, it's my yeah. roommate's birthday. So she has, um, in our, like, what is it? Like a 400 square f- Our apartment's really small and she has three friends visiting. So it's very fun. We yeah, won't be spending a lot of time at home. I know. I hope the That's rain like... stops. It's going to be good. Yeah. I think it is. It's, look, it's looking nicer out right now. Yeah, um, I think so. The Elsa's passed, hopefully. Hopefully. Tyler, what about you, man? Tell us about your dad, your typical dad weekend these days. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Mowing the lawn. Uh, do, you have, do you have New Balance sneakers to do that? I, I There's this new Disney movie. Yeah, I got some sweet New Balances. You know, the, the, My friends call them shit kickers. <laughs> they're like grass <laughs> grass stained it's just great great look but uh yeah we also watch the, you guys probably don't get this yet but disney you know how like you don't really you don't really watch disney or any of that stuff for pretty much from the time you're a teenager to like you know young professional once you have kids it's like crack cocaine for these these things and you just <laughs> They're like, oh, I want to watch Luca. Like, Luca's the new thing that just came out. Or, like, Monsters, Inc. Mm. And you're just, they're captivated by it. And you get why, like, Disney is such a, like, a huge corporation. So. Because <laughs> they just love this stuff. Yeah. What's but, their favorite yeah. right now? Luca. Luca. It's this oh, new. I've, I hadn't even heard of Luca. He's half sea monster <laughs> and he's half human. When he gets out of the water, he turns human. And he lives in a little. Is it a movie uh, or a show? It's a movie. It's like the yeah. new. Normally, it would have been huge if it if the pandemic wasn't happening, but they went direct through streaming instead of like the movie. So, yeah, check it out. You have Disney, Disney Plus on this. Seen thing. about fifty times already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh God, Disney does crush it. I mean, even the Marvel movies—they're like extremely watchable i would characterize them i've been watching the loki i don't know if other people have been watching that that should be a surprise to no one that i'm a huge nerd and i like these comic book type movies but uh yeah um it's not bad it's not bad case what's, what's your go-to movies you know we do a lot of reality television in my apartment not a lot of movies <laughs> but i was a nanny for like five years in high school and i saw pretty much all the pixar movies and i agree they are pretty good Maybe not good on like the tenth watch, because kids like to repeat them. But the first few watches, they are pretty good. I agree. All right, guys, let's let's wrap it there. This is a good uh, roundup. Thanks, Case, for joining us, spicing it up a little bit. I know. Um, Thanks this for was having a lot of fun. me. Yeah, we'll do it Lots again soon. Fun.